Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast brought to you by members of the Horror Writers Association Ontario chapter, where we discuss the business of horror with a focus on the written word. I'm Andrew Robertson, your host for this episode, and today our guest is Lisa Morton, horror author, screenwriter, noted Halloween expert, and president of the Horror Writers Association. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's absolutely fantastic to have you on board. Um, Now, Let's get right into this. You have numerous novels and collections out. For any newcomers, where would you say is the best place to start with your work? Um, well, you can check out either my website, which is lisamorton.com. That's an easy one. Or most of them are available through Amazon. Is there, is there a particular book um, that you think best represents your body of work that people should jump into? I know that... Um, Malediction, uh, that was originally published in 2013, has been reissued in ebook format by Cemetery Dance. Um, and you've got a couple of other novels. Uh, is, is there a work that maybe uh, stands out that you would recommend for people to start to explore your worlds? Uh, if they're looking for fiction, I, I really love Malediction. It's probably my personal favorite of the things that I've written. Um, and it's a really good, nice, affordable um, ebook now from Cemetery Dance. If you're interested in nonfiction, I've got everything from uh, a book about the history of ghosts to uh, a number of books on the history of Halloween. And of course, this podcast is going to come out during October. So. I have to talk to you about Halloween. Uh, you're you're renowned as a Halloween expert, which is I, I don't think a distinction that a lot of people hold or a lot of people get. But you've really done your research. Um, so that my first question related to to that realm of your interest is: you've written nonfiction on folklore and Halloween. Which of those interests came first for you? Uh, it was really Halloween, and I kind of. Um, stumbled into that almost by accident. I was working with a publisher and we had done a film book together and uh, we had a good time working on that and they ended up saying, do you want to try something else? We'd love to work with you again. And I looked at their current catalog of things they had just brought out and I saw that they had recently released a Christmas encyclopedia. And so I wrote them back and I said, hey, you know, I saw you had just done this, but nobody has ever done a Halloween encyclopedia. And they said, we love it. And for some strange reason, I thought it was going to be very easy to research. And of course, oh, about three years later. (laughs) (laughs) So you you touch on a lot of different uh, areas of history in the Halloween encyclopedia. You've got uh, Sam Hain, uh, the Celtic ancestor. You've got uh, Christian traditions. It goes to modern society. Um, what are some of the biggest misconceptions or unusual facts um, that you discovered in your research as a part of putting together the encyclopedia? Oh, that's... That's such a great question because I like to call Halloween the most misunderstood of holidays. Um, I think whereas most people can tell you, of course, the meaning of Christmas or um, where the name, obviously something like New Year's is very easy, most people who celebrate Halloween really know almost nothing about it. Um, in terms of the history and even the, the name and so forth, uh, it does date back to that uh, Celtic holiday, which, by the way, the pron- correct pronunciation is probably closer to Samhain. Um, I know it looks like Samhain, and that's, 
that sounds so great because it sounds like a character's name, and it is used a lot as characters' names in horror fiction and movies. Um, but it, it is pronounced more like Samhain, and it was the Celtic um, New Year's. And as their New Year's celebration, it was a day when they thought the barrier between worlds was at its thinnest, that things could cross over from another world. And, and these things might take the form of spirits of the dead or mischievous fairies, which they called the she. And their fairies, by the way, weren't like cute Tinkerbell kind of things. We're talking scary and destructive. So that's probably where Halloween gets a lot of its um, macabre um feeling is that that original dating back to that celtic holiday now i i do know growing up as a kid with uh, scottish ancestry we knew that fairies were vicious and evil <laughs> because a, a lot of a lot of our traditional folklore and children's tales include really evil fairies and sprites and they're vicious and they nip at you and they try and make deals with you and if you don't make a deal with them in the right way they get quite violent so i i always found it funny growing up that everyone um everyone thought fairies were like uh mystical mermaids and happy creatures and i thought no they're pretty mean <laughs> yes indeed they are so why do you think halloween has become such a a tradition in North America. I know it's it's catching on more in other parts of the world, but I think we're we're very North American centric, and we don't realize that the the whole tradition of dressing up and the candy and the and the giving things out it's it's most popular in North America. What do you think explains that phenomenon? Well, that uh, trick or treat is one of the other parts of of Halloween that I think is kind of misunderstood because you read a lot of these kind of things where people will say, "Oh, it goes back to the Celts, or it goes back thousands of years, or even hundreds of years," and it doesn't. It's very recent. It's less than a hundred years old. Um, it started as a way to buy off destructive pranksters because up until the 1930s, uh, Halloween was mainly celebrated as a night of playing pranks. And for a long time, that was fun and innocent. Kids would go into the farmer's field and, you know, tip over an outhouse or something like that. But then in the 30s, as America became more um, urbanized, it moved into cities and it became very destructive. And cities were getting so upset at how many light fixtures were broken and how many fires were set that some of them were thinking about banning the holiday altogether. And fortunately, a few of them came to their senses and said, now, wait a minute, maybe there's another way to approach this. And they came up with this idea of these house-to-house -house parties, they were originally called, because it was the Depression, people didn't have a lot of money. So they got together and they created this thing where kids would go from house to house and they put them in costumes because kids love to dress up and they gave them treats. And uh, eventually that became our modern trick-or-treat. That's really interesting. I actually did not know that, but I think there's such a, there's such a growing wealth of information about Halloween that the, the history hasn't been documented in the sort of depth that you've gone into. Um, when you just do a sort of tertiary scan on the internet. So something that I have to ask you is about jack-o'-lanterns, because there's, there's some articles that you'll find that say they used to hollow out turnips and light them up to scare away ghosts and evil spirits. Um, there's other vegetables, root vegetables, gourds being used. So what is the actual accurate history of the jack-o'-lantern in the Halloween tradition, or did it get tied into that tradition um, through other means? 
Well, it did start with things that were not pumpkins because it started in Ireland. And pumpkins, of course, are native to the New World. They didn't have pumpkins in Ireland 300 years ago. Uh, but they had these big turnips that they could carve. And again, it was probably related to prank playing. Kids would carve a big scary face in one of these things and set it out by the side of the road on Halloween night to scare the unwary traveler, they would put them next to graveyards, that kind of thing. Um, and the, uh, it probably also ties into the story of Jack the Trickster. This is a very famous, legendary piece of um, folklore and fairy tales. It goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. It's known in various forms all over Europe and North America. And it's about a trickster who... Uh, uh, manages to defeat the devil on three separate occasions from taking him to hell. And so when he finally dies, um, he shows up in hell, and uh, the devil says, I don't want you, and heaven doesn't want him. And so he is left to wander this dark earth forever, and finally Satan takes a little bit of pity on him and throws him a burning uh, coal from the embers of hell. And Jack puts that into a carved-out turnip or gourd or pumpkin and uses that to light his way. That's very interesting. Now, in light of what you said about how it used to be about pranks and people would go house to house and then they would get dressed up, at what point did Halloween start to become about fearsome spirits? Or at what point did that time of year and, and the traditions that sort of evolved into Halloween, when did it come back to something about the spirits, appeasing the spirits, and about fear and being scared and the sort of uh, monstrous iconography that we associate with Halloween now. Yeah, that's that's was a big question for me too, and um, <laughs> it has some interesting stories. It it really started in the 1970s. Up until that point, it had still been kind of a kid's holiday, and of course, the baby boomers love trick or treat. But then you start to get the baby boomers aging, and some of them are anxious to reclaim the holiday, but you also get a lot of counterculture movements who are starting to claim the holiday. Um, for example, in the 70s, there was a lot of uh, movement for pagans, and um, the pagans were claiming it as a um, one of their Sabbaths, and it is a Sabbath in many of the pagan religions. And then you get things like um, uh, LGBT culture coming along in the 70s, and uh, things like the big uh, Greenwich Village um, parade in New York started about then. And um, at the end of the 70s, you get the real bombshell, which is a little movie called Halloween. And it's amazing how much impact that movie had on the holiday. Uh, it's one of the rare cases of a movie affecting a holiday and not the other way around. What do you think encouraged the filmmakers to tie that horror into the Halloween end of October time of year and into that sort of a spirit? Do you think it was just a convenient way to get the mask on a character or... Is, is there something else that you can see in terms of the cultural movement in, in popular culture to bring it to that? It was, well, you know, I don't know if you know the story that Halloween was originally going to be called the Babysitter Murders. And uh, <laughs> it was not going to reference the holiday at all. And I think it was um, the producer, Erwin Yablons, who came along and said, no, you know, we could, we could really capitalize on this, this holiday. 
And he was kind of uh, apparently one of the guys who said, let's let's face it on this holiday. And they in, ended up um, inserting the holiday, not completely at the last minute, but much later than you might guess. And um, so it ended up being, you know, one of the ultimate holiday movies and turning horror, uh, turning it back to a horror themed celebration. And um, I think it was almost just a commercial and uh, retailing kind of thing. And, and holidays are really driven by that more than a lot of people probably want to admit or want to think. Um, for Halloween, for example, um, one of the reasons that trick-or-treat caught on so much in the 50s was that candy companies came along and started retailing mass candy. Uh, up until that point, homeowners had made their own treats for the kids. Costume companies came along and started mass-producing costumes. And then in the 80s, believe it or not, Beer becomes a big part of the holiday and is another one of the things that helps make it an adult party night. Um, when Coors was looking for a holiday to equal the beer sales of Super Bowl Sunday, <laughs> they came up with this idea of Halloween. Nobody had done beer sales at Halloween before. Uh, it took them a couple of years to get the formula right, but then they hired Elvira and the sales went nuts. Now, that's something everyone's going to have to YouTube. Do you know if the Coors Light Elvira uh, partnership is available online? Can people check out some uh, some vintage footage of that? I would imagine some of it must be. Um, I truthfully have never checked on that, but... The uh, if you if you want to see something really funny, also try their their campaign before they were smart enough to bring Elvira in. It was called the uh, Silver Bullet, and it was a werewolf thing themed campaign, and it just didn't have the same play. But you know what? That's pretty cute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they they did hit the nail on the head a little bit there, but uh, there's nothing like Elvira. You guys are so lucky to have her over there on the West Coast. Oh. <laughs> we are indeed. Now, for yourself, do you have uh, do you have Halloween traditions? Being a Halloween expert, I, I think people must expect that that you have um, you have it sort of planned in advance. Well, I I do, and it's probably would be very boring to most people, but I love um, home. Uh, home haunts um, or yard haunts, as they're also called in the biz. And I, uh, here in L.A., we have extraordinary home haunts because a lot of people in the area, of course, work in the film business. They're special effects people. And they put on these amazing exhibits right in their front yards. And these things are like um, folk art to me. And I just absolutely love them. So I tend to spend my uh, weekend around Halloween um, just driving around and checking out uh, local um, yard displays that people have told me I should go see. Were you uh, were you obsessed with the holiday as a child? Oh yeah. <laughs> Did you do you have any um, any costumes that stick out for you? I know for me, my first big costume was an ET mask with one of those vinyl squares that you 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 know put yourself into, trying not to tear it, trying not to tear the mask, um, and and just stood in there all oh, night sweating at the doors. <laughs> so for me, that was mine that sticks out. And did it give you like a really great feeling to be in that outfit? Well, I, I don't know what happened with that movie in me, but I felt very emphatic towards him. When I always say the the scene where he's lying in the river and he just looks like a swollen thumb, <laughs> I felt so <laughs> bad for him. <laughs> right. So, you know, so for me, I just thought, you know, he's such a great guy. 
Also, that same year, my grandmother told me if I didn't hurry up and pick the costume, that me and my sister would wear a pie plate on a hat and we would be painted silver, no costume, and she would just put us out that way. So we were terrified. Understandably. (laughs) And so we just grabbed that. We thought it was, you know, a Scottish tradition. If the kid doesn't plan it quick enough, then just whatever's closest, slap it on them and send them to the doors. (laughs) Right. I love the the whole sort of empowerment idea of kids being costumed on Halloween. You know, that it's like the one night of the year where you get to be whatever you want. And it's not only okay, but you kind of get paid with candy for it, you know. Um, when I was a kid, my big costume one year, um, I, I should preface this by almost apologizing for the fact that my dad was an obsessive hunter. But because of that, we always had bizarre things around the house. And uh, we had like actual honest to god deer hides and uh, the one year i wanted to be a cave woman so i was a cave woman wearing an honest to god like dead animal skin <laughs> shades of the future <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's um that's got to be somewhere between exciting and then also did, did you feel that they should have taken you to, to the store to buy you know a quote-unquote proper halloween costume or had it not been commercialized to that point where you lived uh, it was pretty commercial, but I liked the idea that it was authentic. I was enough of a little play actor by that point that I thought this was great. Absolutely. And I mean, that that really brings the horror when someone realizes it's a real pelt. You had this sort of, you know, Mad Max cavewoman thing happening full on there. <laughs> right. Exactly. So now let's talk about um, your presidency of the HWA. I know that uh, in, in some ways for the HWA, it's been a challenging year. There's been some different discourses, but I think that's one of the benefits of having an organization that has a strong social media presence. You know, you, you get a lot of sort of real-time opinions, uh, but there's also been a lot of progress. There's there's new members. There was a great Stoker Awards event and the inaugural StokerCon. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the decision to have StokerCon as a standalone convention that encompasses the Bram Stoker Awards, um, and also what's coming up for this year in 2017, because it's a really, really unique experience that I think a lot of people would want to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were, for many years, we would either hold the Bram Stoker Awards um, as their own event, and it was kind of scaled down. It was fairly simple. We might do a few panels and readings and so forth, but usually just centered around giving out the awards at a big gala banquet. Um, And then other years, we would be partnered with the World Horror Conventions. And we were growing in size so much by about four or five years ago that we started to hear from a lot of members who said, you know, I wish we could do our own convention. And then people really um, started to chip in and say, and I would even host it if it was in my city. And at that point, um, the president was Rocky Wood, and uh, he was my immediate predecessor. And, and Rocky, I was his vice president, and we were starting to talk about it and say, you know, we think we finally have the resources to, to realize this. Let's try it. So um, we created StokerCon, and um, we decided that the first city that we held it in would be Vegas because it's a very exciting city. A lot of people wanted to come. And we had um, people who wanted to hold it in Vegas who wanted to work it for us. 
So uh, unfortunately, Rocky passed away before he could see how well it came off. We did hold it this year in uh, May, and it was very successful, and everybody had a great time. And we figured out things that worked and things that didn't, and we think that this next year for 2017 will be even better. This year it's going to be in uh, Long Beach aboard the Queen Mary, one of the world's most famous haunted ships. Um, some of the things that we thought worked well that we're keeping are Horror University, which is a programming track of workshops and special presentations, and those are taught by amazing people like um, New York Times bestsellers like Jonathan Mayberry and um, major award-winning people and exciting new voices and so forth. And um, then we are also going to, I think, even expand a little bit this year on our film festival. That was another thing we had never tried before that was very successful, and people loved it at um, the Vegas event. And we have a pretty amazing lineup of guests for Long Beach. We have uh, George R. R. Martin. We've got um, uh, Chuck Wendig and Elizabeth Hand and Gretchen McNeil. And uh, one of the things I love is that we have our first ever librarian guest of honor, who is Becky Spratford. She runs the um, uh, RA uh, uh, All for Horror. I may have that slightly mixed up, but it's the librarian's blog that's associated to horror. I've been reading it for years. Um, she also wrote the Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror that is the kind of go-to reference for librarians who want to know what horror to put on their shelves. And um, partly because Becky is a, one of our big guests, we're also going to have an entire day dedicated to librarians. We will have a librarian's day with special programming. And this will be great for writers because you'll get to learn how to work with your local library how to interface and get events and speaking gigs and all kinds of stuff. That's fantastic. Yeah, I just looked it up. RA for all horror. Um, that That's actually very interesting. And it's it's such a unique venue to be holding the convention on. Now, one question. If people do go, are they allowed to ask George R.R. R. Martin when the books are going to be done? <laughs> I'm sure they can ask. I have no idea what he's going to answer. But I know he's not going to. He's not going to budge on that one. He'll be done when he's done. Um, now, in in 2017, there's also an anthology coming out that's being put together by the HWA on the topic of Halloween. Can you tell me a little bit about that, or as much as you're able to tell me without giving away too much? Sure. Yeah, that will be. Uh, that's a book called uh, Hollow's Eve. It is being edited by Ellen Datlow and myself. Um, we are very excited about that. It is the second anthology that we will have put out in the last two years because this year we brought out a young adult-themed anthology called Scary Out There. That came out in August. That one is edited by Jonathan Mayberry. and just It has an insanely great lineup of writers. Um, these anthologies are open to submission from all members of HWA. Unfortunately, <laughs> the submission period for Hollow's Eve is closed already. Don't ask if you can submit to that one. <laughs> but I will tell you that we are very close probably to having our next anthology put into place. And that one will be taking submissions in uh, 2017. And again, that will be open to all members. So these are exclusive members only uh, members only um, deals that are another wonderful perk of being a member. So that's actually a, a great point to make that if someone's a member of the Horror Writers Association, they not only have access to mentorship, the message boards, um, advice, great articles, 
and great opportunities, but they get access to calls for submissions that are only open to those members. So for our readers that are looking for sort of a home base uh, where they can work from, um, there's there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of benefits to to being a member. And it, it really doesn't cost that much. And I've found over the past year that I've actually benefited a lot from joining the Ontario chapter and having contact with uh, all the members all over the world, not just for talking to them on this podcast, um, but for for the sheer sort of camaraderie and having access to people that you can ask questions, you can interact with, and, and you can have sort of thought exchanges. So I would encourage anyone that's interested to look into their local chapter, and you can often attend a couple of meetings without actually becoming a member um, and see if it's a suit for you. So I, I think that's a very good point to make. Now, another big thing that's coming up is the official Horror Writers Association podcast. Can you speak a little bit to that? Or is it too early in the uh, in the process to really have any news on it? You know, I um, am not heavily involved with that. I have already taped a guest appearance on one of them. Uh, it's mainly being overseen by our administrator, Brad Hobson. It's one of those things where he had always, he talked for years about wanting to do a podcast. So I just kind of let him run with that. Um, I suspect it's going to be really, really cool. It's it's going to be a fairly complex thing. They're doing all kinds of different segments and so forth. That's really about all I know about it right now. It takes a lot of dedication, let me tell you. So. I guess. <laughs> um, now, before before you go, I wanted to ask you, with all the, the interest in horror, uh, we're, we're seeing, I think, a lot of horror novels and anthologies sort of come to the forefront. There's always something on the bestseller list. Then we see films and TV shows like Channel Zero or Stranger Things or Walking Dead. Um really getting high ratings. I mean, American Horror Story, some people don't like this season so much. I'm fine with it. Um, But in light of the popularity of all of those genre mediums, how do you feel about the future of horror, and what do you think we can expect in the coming years? Oh, I think it's in an an amazing place right now. Um, It really is very, very strong at the moment, I feel. And One of the reasons I think I can safely say that is just things like, in the past, it was much harder for us to sell anthologies. Um, It's actually easier now than it seems to have been for a long time. Now, part of that is due to an incredible new agent we have. But also, it just seems like it really is increasing gigantically in popularity. Um, I think it is due to some of these amazing television shows and and, um, I'm really, really happy that they all came along because I think they have really spurred a lot of this new interest. It is pretty great and it's it's wonderful when you're interested in a genre to actually be able to turn on the TV once a week and, and see something new. I mean... We all love the classics, for sure. <laughs> but it is great to see all this sort of new blood and new ideas, and, and even TV shows coming out of creepypasta. I mean, who would have thought? It's it's very, very interesting. So I would like to thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'm happy to be here, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, you can, for our listeners, you can find Lisa on Twitter at Sinwriter, that's C-I-N-R-I-T-E-R. 
or uh, you can find her at lisamorton.com. And for us, you can find us on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast or on Facebook as the Great Lakes Horror Company. We're going to be having some online contests and announcements coming up, so be sure to follow us, subscribe on iTunes, and check out the Horror Writers Association and see if that's the right fit for you. Until next time, keep haunting.